Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, Alarmy. Thanks for tuning in. Before we start, please be advised that this episode contains discussions of domestic violence and sexual abuse. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, Alarmy. Before we get started, we wanted to make sure you heard the big news. The Alarmist has joined Patreon. Patreon subscribers will get access to our content ad-free, as well as our aftermath post-interview discussion and final verdict. We'll also be putting out additional bonus episodes and other fun stuff. Here's a preview of our Little Alarms series, only available on Patreon. Four plays into the first game mm-hmm. with Aaron Rodgers. He tears his Achilles oh. and he's out for the season. See ya. Out for the season. That's People terrible. are just tearing all the things. Ace, the, uh, what is it? L-U's? The, the AC. The ACLU is... Okay, this is a different thing, though. Different No, that's a different thing. I don't uh-huh. know if his civil liberties have been infringed upon by the by the defense, although it's possible that possible. they have. Yeah. Um, but his, his, his Achilles. Okay, yeah, Achilles. and that's bad. Go to patreon.com slash the alarmist and subscribe today. Now, on to our episode. Each week, we decide who's to blame for a historical tragedy. And each week, you tell us if we got it right. My name is Rebecca Delgado-Smith, and this is The Aftermath. Aftermath. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning into this episode of The Aftermath. 
Today, we're speaking with guest expert, Dr. Tracy Tambora. Dr. Tambora is a professor of criminal justice at the University of New Haven. She's also an expert on domestic violence, sexual assault and abuse, and the effects of the criminal justice system on women, persons of color, and persons affected by poverty. Tracy is also a former director of the Domestic Violence Agency in New Jersey. Let's hear what she has to say about the Lorena Bobbitt case. Hi, Tracy. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. This is my first time on The Alarmist, but I've read great things about you, and I listened to a few podcasts to get oh ready. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> what an honor. It's, yeah, both fun and informative, so that's great. <laughs> so uh, I was wondering if we could start off with some backstory on John Bobbitt and Lorena Gallo. Um, how did they meet? Uh, what were the circumstances of their marriage? So, I mean, listen, this is a case that's over because this is the case hit media headlines, right? In I think it was 93. Um, so a lot of what we know about that case is coming to me as an expert. I don't have the trial testimony, but um, I can tell you a little bit about what I know about the case and how it lines up with other domestic violence cases. So the case comes, it's, it seems to be a somewhat typical domestic violence case in terms of there was lots, there was uh, all forms of domestic violence. There were, was uh, emotional abuse, uh, there was physical abuse. Um, and then I think what captured so much of the media attention was the fact that there appeared to be the presence of a great deal of sexual abuse. Um, we had heard, of course, of many cases in the media um, that warranted attention and resulted in things like the Burning Bed movie, you know, where there was extreme physical abuse. We also know of very famous cases that changed the course of domestic violence legislation and policy, like the Tracy Thurman case in which there was extreme physical abuse. But a lot of what was interesting about this case, in addition to the fact that there was obviously what catches the attention of most people is that she um, removed his penis um, <laughs> at the end of, I'm, I don't know how else to say this gently, uh, but she cut off his penis. What was interesting was the amount of testimony that was presented about the level of sexual violence within the relationship. So, you know, uh, I, all I know about how they got together, how the relationship started was like you would know about, you know, from the news or from any other, they started dating and the relationship escalated. They were in a committed lifelong relationship. Uh, and, but again, what is, what I have spent the most time looking at at this case is that it overlaps with my two areas of expertise, domestic violence and sexual assault. And both of these things are going on in that case. Now, the, the cops were called to their home for domestic disturbances multiple times throughout their marriage. Uh, mm -hmm. What was the protocol for law enforcement back back then in the early 90s for this kind of altercation? And, and how did authorities deal with it at the time? Yeah. So you're asking, I think, like the most important question um, is what is the social response to it? And the social response that we often associate with domestic violence is just the police response. So it's 19, uh, you know, the, their relationship, the violence is escalating through the late 80s into the early 90s. Police are called to the home. Um, there is record of that that is entered into uh, court record. That is very common. 
um, this is 19, this is 1988, 1989-9091, uh, this period of time. Now, I have to just put in context one other case real quick. I won't become a boring professor. No. Right? Okay. I like but it. Not, I want it. Okay. Okay. Because I, I can go there. All right. So <laughs> the big case that changes everything is 1984 Tracy Thurman case. This is a case here in Connecticut where I'm a professor. And it was horrible. Tracy Thurman at the uh, it calls police many times. Small town, everybody knows her. They kind of let her her husband, his his nickname is Buck, get away with so much. They call the police are called at the end of the uh, the last time the police are called to her house. Buck is there enraged. He's he's trying to take the child away. He's got a knife. Long story short, he ends up paralyzing her, stabbing her repeated times. And the real unfortunate piece is the police were present, but didn't want to intervene in a familial dispute. So this creates this, you know, it, this is after this case, it's the first time that a victim of domestic violence sues a police department for failure to respond. Before this, you know, police just routinely, let's walk the guy around, tell him to cool off, right? And so after this case, police are now obligated to do a series of things depending on the state in which they're in. And uh, I think Lorena Bobbitt case is in uh, Virginia. Virginia, Virginia, if I remember. Yeah, yeah, Virginia. So and they have the same they have the same laws. It's called mandatory arrest. So they're supposed to arrest, they're supposed to evaluate what's going on in the household, and then, and at least remove the individual, the perpetrator, the arrested party for a, a period of time, somewhere between 24 hours and, and a weekend if it happens on a Friday. Um, so this had happened previously, um, but in most instances of domestic violence, uh, it, definitely in 1993, but still to today. The victim will either decide not to move forward with the case or the prosecutor will say there's not enough to go forward and the couple reconciles. And that's what happened here. I mean, it seemed like she was clearly trying to get help throughout this uh, time period when she was married to John, but she couldn't seem to get out of this abusive relationship. I mean, what kind of resources, if any, would she have had back then yeah. in the 90s? Um, and well, so the, the resources that were put in place. So after the Thurman case, another thing that happens, but unfortunately not in time for Lorena Bobbitt is it's right after this Lorena Bobbitt case. I don't, I cannot definitively say the Lorena Bobbitt case was instrumental, but the United States government passed the Violence Against Women Act in 1994. I think that this case, along with a couple of other really important cases of the early 90s, prompted Congress to pass this. So now, thankfully, there are things like domestic violence shelters with funding. There are things like lethality assessment protocols that victims of domestic violence should receive at the point of the scene. Unfortunately, those things weren't put in place for Lorena Bobbitt. So what we had was a pretty rudimentary criminal justice system in which police had very little training. I should say, this might shock you and your viewers, but still to this day in most states, police departments during academy have less than 10 hours of training on domestic violence. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And in, in most states, it's around four or five. So at this period of time, there was no training on what to do when you respond to a domestic violence scene. So it was just handled 
The typical way police handled domestic violence before protocols went in place in the late 90s was just to walk the guy around, have him cool off, unless there were life-threatening injuries. Now, two days before the incident, uh, Lorena goes to the police station to try and file a restraining order against John, but she then leaves. Uh, She says it's because it was going to take some time. What kind of bureaucratic setbacks would she have had to go through? And is that still the case today? Yeah. So again, prior to this 1994 Violence Against Women Act, the protocols weren't put in place and states were not mandated to, um, you know, enact a process which would guarantee the safety. No, I shouldn't say guarantee the safety because this week I uh, here in Connecticut, here in New Haven, Connecticut, we just had a woman killed by her husband after police were at the house and left. He returned with a gun and shot her. Um, but it's it, even though we still get the these cases, it it has come a long way. So um, the protocol that is now in place that wasn't in place for Lorena, she went to court from what, again, from what I've read, I did not obtain the official court documents. So I've read news stories online. Um, from what I have read, she called the police, she, the police were at her residence at least three times. Um, and she did not, uh, he, he was removed at least once before this final incident occurs, the uh, the incident that puts her on trial. Um, and uh, but but they would give her the instructions that are necessary, that this is a family matter. Um, you can go through and file um, an arrest or a restraining order, um, but you're going to need to initiate the process. The process at that time was really cumbersome, and it resulted in very, very few victims of domestic violence, male or female, although at that time it was almost exclusively female, um, receiving any kind of court support or services. Also, again, even informal supports that might have protected her that we're accustomed to today, safe houses and shelters, they don't really exist at this period of time. You know, there was a real loose network of former victims of domestic violence who wanted to give back. And they would say, like, we'll help the woman. She can come stay at our home. Um, but obviously, this is not a long term solution for individuals who aren't professional and can't guarantee the safety. So most women didn't pursue the, um, you know, uh, more long-term prospects. Also, the last thing I should say is there was, you know, through the 80s into the early 90s, it was very much still the case that families were routinely telling victims of domestic violence to stay with the abusive partner. Wow. So not only, not only were police services not available and, and prosecutor's offices didn't take the cases seriously, but you really had... Um, uh, families and friends telling them your places with your husband, um, you know, try to work this out in all, in, except for in cases where there was extreme, very visible violence. But we do know that from research from the 80s and 90s, by and large, victims of domestic violence were being given the advice from family members to return. So, Lorena's citizen's uh, status was a big factor in this case. Uh, How did John use it to control her and how common is that as a form of manipulation in abusive relationships? 
Oh, I'm so glad you asked that because the intersection of victimization with other factors, you know, like race, like poverty, like sexual orientation is very important. So I think she, Lorena Bobbitt is from Venezuela. I remember, do you remember the country? Ecuador of and then Venezuela. Yeah. So her citizenship is in question, right? And citizenship status is so such an important factor that domestic violence researchers and experts have created a separate category of victimization to explain this. And this is immigration um, isolation. And so the victim of domestic violence often has their um, immigration status manipulated and used against them. Now, in 1993, we had no provisions to help someone like Lorena Bobbitt, who a victim of domestic violence, who um, immigration status was in question. We now have specialized visas that came into being under the 1994 uh, victims of crime, excuse me, Violence Against Women Act that acknowledge if if the perpetrator of the violence is the one who's supporting the individual's visa or immigration status, then that individual, the victim can file for a separate visa um, under this provision that will then hold their immigration status um, so that there, it's not an auto, automatic uh, deportation. And this is so important in cases where kids are involved, right? Because the victim could be deported and the children would be left with the abusive partner. That didn't exist for Lorena and, and she was aware of that. So the ability to isolate her further um, manipulate using her immigration status is a factor we see all, and not just for Lorena Bobbitt, but currently too. Yeah. Wow. Uh I, I've also read about statistics that say that um, women in abusive relationships are the most vulnerable while they're in the process of leaving their partner or up to six months after. How vulnerable was Lorena at the time of the incident? And would you consider her act an act of self-defense? So, so complicated. You, yeah, you ask. <laughs> yeah, I know. You ask two really important pieces. So, uh, the first one, yeah, you know what? I um, I'm I'm working with an author who's writing a novel, and she's trying to get some expert opinion on why women stay in abusive relationships and what might be happening at the point when they decide to leave, because it's based on a true story of a woman who's murdered. Um, and one of the things that when I was helping her, when I'm like giving her information, I'm I see this, women are most at risk when they try to leave. And that is true and untrue at the same time. Oh. So it's true in that we have asked, we have taken a look at when women are murdered, what is their relationship status? And often they have just left the relationship. So, okay, so we know women... <laughs> We know that in many cases, women who are murdered have just attempted to leave the relationship, but we don't have the research necessary to tell us if it is actually the most dangerous time. And this is going to sound strange to you, but women that are in near lethal or lethal levels are experiencing near lethal levels of violence are constantly leaving mm. and constantly returning. Um, it's it's an unfortunate dynamic of extreme, the, and this is only luckily for domestic violence cases. It's somewhere probably about two less than two percent that will end in near lethal violence, or and less than one percent that will end in lethal violence. So, 
luckily for us, right? But we're not sure if being in the process of leaving is actually leaving or if it's a process of trying to regain independence. So I get that question a lot. So mm-hmm. it's we just don't have enough research to say if it's the actual time where the individual's leaving or if it's product, part of a process in which the individual is coming and going, which is very common in a very, dis, very abusive uh, relationship. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. And then the second part of the question you asked was, oh, was it self-defense? Yes. Oh, okay. So <laughs> the, the criminologist, right? So... My PhD is in criminology, so I have both legal training and then sociological training. So the former director of the Victim Service Agency, the sociologist in me is like, yes, it was self-defense because domestic violence takes a cumulative effect on the psyche, right? And so you're, you're constantly thinking your life is at risk when you're in this extreme form of domestic violence. Again, this very rare extreme type of domestic violence. Um, this, the, the individual, some legal training is this doesn't necessarily meet the legal definition of domestic violence because in that moment, excuse me, it doesn't meet the legal definition of self-defense because in that moment, her life was not at risk, which that, right. And so a lot of times the general public isn't, is confused because a prosecutor is only looking at the elements of the crime in that moment. But at trial, you might have an expert psychologist, uh, victimologist, criminologist to come in that says, well, 
those 10 minutes leading up to the, that moment, you know, when she could have left the house, she could have made a different decision, um, aren't necessarily uh, the elements of the case that should be examined in isolation. There's also the cumulative effect of years of extreme abuse in which the individual constantly feels their life is at risk and therefore they do feel like they're, they should use even a lethal form of protection. But does that make sense? That so does like, make I, sense. Yeah. It's, I see the prosecutor's perspective and then somebody like me is going to say, yeah, but it was self-defense, but a prosecutor is going to say she could have walked out the door. Right. It's exactly. I, I want to talk about uh, marital rape. What is marital rape and why wasn't John charged uh, with marital rape when his case was tried? So ma marital rape is, you know, it's, it's on its face value, it seems straightforward, right? It's it's rape within the context of a marriage, but it's much more complicated than that. Um, most states prior to about 1994 did not recognize, or prior to 88, um, did not recognize the, um, marital rape. So if you read a rape statue in the 70s and the 80s, it would say physically forced or threatened sexual uh, sexual contact without consent, except for, there'd be this little clause, except for in the context of marriage. Because um, you have to understand the history of um, rape law in America. Rape um, was not considered a crime at all prior to the 20th century because it was a marital obligation and women were considered to be the marital property of the husband. So how the husband can't destroy his own property. We start to see rape law evolve in the early like 20th century. And some people are like, no, rape can occur. But we still left marriage off the table. Legislators in the early 20th century, 1920, 1930, they're like, OK, we'll give you some laws on rape. But there's no way we're going to make it apply to a husband. That's just ridiculous. And so it's all the way until the 70s where you get that feminist movement saying, listen, husband's rape, um, that we started to even contemplate it. And you start to see this slow trickle among the states to remove the marital rape exemption. Some states, including my own home state, Connecticut, still have a little weird language. Like the Connecticut state statute still says, uh, uh, you know, uh, Rape in the first degree is physically forced intercourse without without consent. Rape in the second degree is repeats it and applies to individuals that are legally married. So if the prosecutor wants to, they can plead down a rape one to a rape two. Well, it's called sexual assault. It's not called rape. A sexual assault one to a sexual assault two if it's in the context of a marriage. So... All 50 states now recognize marital rape and allow a prosecutor to go after um, a, uh, a person who is married to the victim. However, a few states still have these like, but you could just give them a little bit of a less charge or a less severe punishment. Yeah. And that comes from unbelievable. Yeah. And that comes from our history of thinking women were property and in particular property of their husband. So how could he? She can't say no. <laughs> Um, okay. Processing, processing. Um, 
in learning about uh, the, the, this case, we, we find that the conversation surrounding it was two-pronged in that it was a shame that it was sensationalized in a way that overshadowed the overarching tragedy of domestic abuse um, because it all just became about John and his penis. But yeah. not now looking back on it, it feels like there was also this feminist shift happening behind the scenes. I mean, we talked about it a little bit, but how, how do you feel like this case helped change or, or, or create domestic abuse awareness? Uh, what, what came out of it? Yeah, you're right. I mean, the case gets gains national media attention because, again, not to be crass, but she cut his penis off and drove away with it. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a pretty extreme response to domestic violence. Um, and, and, and then she was tried, right? I think that also was a big issue that she was tried. Um, and listen, I'm not here to debate the f that whether she should have been tried or not. I don't think it is a very healthy or appropriate response to cut off the penis of your domestic abuser. Uh, so I can't say that it was a justification. I can't say that the prosecutor wasn't within their right to try her. But I think what the public gets outraged about in cases like this is, well, they failed her for two, three, four, five years. And then she takes matters into her own hands and she's the one responsible, um, you know, for she's the one who's brought to court. Um, but but your your bigger question was like what did this do um to kind of reinvigorate some of the feminist movements that had kind of died down um in, in the 80s um uh, after the 70s movement well i mean i think this case coupled with the oj simpson case right we all remember the oj simpson case you know it started to put into focus and then there was another case i always forget her name in the early 90s who was stalked and killed the the, the famous young woman in um california um, I know, I can't remember, I'm sorry. But yeah. so there's these three highly publicized cases that come one year after another, after another, in which women are um, in horrendous situations. Two of them end up dead. One of them ends up cutting the penis off her perpetrator, you know, resorting to a really horrendous kind of morbid act. And it starts to call into question finally, like, why is it getting to this point? Um, why in a like modernized democratic society are are do we have this level of violence occurring? Um, and listen, you also have to put this in context to one more thing, uh, Rebecca. As you know, you're you're younger and you're not a criminologist, but the '80s and '90s were extremely violent. Uh, period, it was an extremely violent period of time. Crime rates were crazy, not just domestic violence, but we had a murder rate in the 80s and early 90s of like eight to nine per 100,000. Right now it's five per 100,000, just to give you some context. Wow. Yeah. 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 So, uh, you know, the, whenever the violence was just at its peak in the 80s and 90s both on the streets and in people's homes. Mm -hmm. And so it was a wake-up call for a lot of factors in the criminal justice system, feminist scholars, police departments, prosecutors. You also have those kind of famous cases 
coming to light, one of the reasons O.J. Simpson is not convicted has nothing to do. I don't know if he was guilty or innocent, but the police botched that investigation so badly. Um, and so it starts to call into question the way that police respond when crimes are regarding something domestic in nature mm. and protocol gets put in place. Yeah. Now, we want to raise awareness about domestic abuse um, and domestic violence. What what are some signs that people should look out for when identifying someone who might be going through that? Um, and, and, and what should they do? And I know I'm asking a lot of questions, but if you are someone in that situation, what help is there out there for you? You know, Rebecca, there is like such a fine line between dysfunctional relationships and abusive relationships. Mm. Um, and so there are many, many people who are on, in unhealthy, dysfunctional relationships. So it, I'm going to put out some warning signs, but they don't necessarily mean that you're in an abusive relationship yet. I'll tell you where, again, in a generalization without talking to a person directly and doing a direct assessment. But um you want to look for some signs um, in particular of emotional and physical isolation. This stuff starts to creep up right away. Like, oh, um, you're going out with your friends. You know, your friend, you know, has some problems. Are you sure he or she's a good influence on you? Oh, you want to go to your parents' house? Oh, I don't think your parents like me very much. They make me feel uncomfortable. So these are some things where you're like, oh, I have a sensitive partner. Let me support my sensitive partner. But little by little, they're kind of poking holes in your circle. So that, that's one, this kind of emotional leading to physical isolation. Another one is, I think this term is so overused in our society, but it is, you know, if it's, if it's legitimate, it, it's the term gaslighting, right? You hear everybody talking about being gaslit as a, someone studying uh, physical and emotional abuse for years. I'm getting quite annoyed with how exaggerated this term is being, but, but if you're in a relationship and somebody is repeatedly trying to diminish how you feel now, listen, Somebody can say to you, are you sure this is legitimate? Like, is, the, is your issue with me or did you have a bad day right now? That's a legitimate question in a healthy relationship. If the individual has no ability to take constructive criticism and is constantly deflecting and putting it back on you and saying, is this about your bad day? Is this something about you having, you know, being in a bad mood? Is this something, um, are, are you a hormonal or emotional today? If it's constant, this is when it's starting to become a problem. And then um, the other thing is monitoring. And here again, we live in a society in which we allow ourselves to be constantly monitored, right? You know, my daughter who's who moved away, she's a, a college age, she's like, do you want my location? And, you know, the mom in me is like, yeah, sure. But the criminologist <laughs> in me is like, no, I don't. I don't want you to start getting comfortable giving people your location um, because of two reasons. One, this could lead to your ability to be monitored quite easily. But also, you know, we overemphasize risk in our society. We're, we're constantly living in a fearful state. And so I'm, I'm also worried about people being controlled by fear. As 
so, you know, because controlling behavior is not just by another person, but it's also socially imposed sometimes. And I think we're really controlled by fear. Um, so those are some three warning signs that are that can be a little gray, trying to isolate you, poke holes in your support system, um, trying to minimize your like emotional reactions to problems in the relationship. And again, in a healthy relationship, your partner should check in with you. Is this legitimate? Is this something that I'm doing? I, I feel like it's misplaced. Can we talk about it? But if, but in an unhealthy relationship, the partner has no ability to ever hear any constructive feedback, any criticisms, any problems, any. And then that last one is this constant monitoring. Where are you going? What's happening? Now, the other signs are, are obvious, right? Anytime somebody's shoving, hitting, pushing, slapping you, any form of physical contact, uh-uh, just it should not that there's no place for that in any relationship. Of course, anytime there is sexual assault, um, and people think, you know, I can't be sexually assaulted by my partner. Yes, you can. So anytime you're making it clear to your partner, you do not want to engage in a sex act and that boundary is pushed regardless. That is also a sign. Um, and, and then anything financial. Is somebody manipulating, uh, preventing you from earning money? Or if you're earning money, taking this money from you? These are some big warning signs in, 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 in a relationship. And, and, and what, what kind of help can people get if, if they find themselves in this kind of relationship? Yep. Two things. So of course there's official help, right? Call a hotline. Every state has a hotline. Every like municipality has a program. Even rural uh, communities have programs, right? There, there's at least telephone or Zoom level support at your fingertips in any moment. And then they can also talk to you about being some sort of physical support if you need safety measures or if you want individual counseling or support group services. There's also one other thing. I, if anyone out there is in a relationship that is abusive and controlling, you know, don't get frustrated with your family and friends response if they're starting to get overwhelmed. Your family and friends love you, but they don't know what to do. And so this is a really sad instance. This is not like what I was talking about 30 or 40 years ago, where people were routinely telling, especially a woman, go back your places with your partner. I'm talking about cases that we see on college campuses, high school, you know, any level community. The victim often feels isolated because of the, the perpetrator's actions and then they seek their friends and family out and I don't know if you've been there Rebecca but I've been there and the friend is constantly talking to you you're giving the same advice like this is unhealthy you need help mm -hmm. this is unhealthy you need help and then you start saying he's crazy what is wrong with you right mm. and listen you're not bad. You're not wrong. You're just a normal human being without any skills or training to deal with domestic violence. Domestic violence is exhausting for the victim and the victim's support. Mm. So if, if you're out there and you're a victim and you're getting frustrated with your family and friends, like they love you, but they don't know how to help. Seek out a professional service. And if you're a family or friend, it's so normal and natural for you to be overwhelmed. This is draining try to make the conversations about the person don't focus on the behaviors of the perpetrator of the of the abusive party 
like the the victim is going to keep saying but then he or she did this then he or she said that keep the conversation what do you want what do you need what what's a healthy relationship for you what try to help them to refocus because they start to get fixated on their the perpetrator's needs feelings and emotions Mm. so that's also another telltale sign for a family or friend if they can't talk about themselves anymore and they only talk about the relationship in the context of what the other person is doing they've kind of lost sight of themselves this is all really important tracy thank you so much um I finally, I have to ask you this question. We ask all of our guest experts this question. At the end of the day, if you had to pick a person or thing, it could be a concept that you think is to blame for the Lorena Bobbitt case, or I guess we could put it as the, what, what put Lorena in this position to have to take action? Who or what would that be? I wish I could give you like an answer, like Jesus Christ. No. Um, uh, Religion. Yeah. Well, well hey, there you I'm go. sure I mean, that has, I, we should have put that up on the board. Yeah. But, yes, sure. So, you know, law comes from religion. Religious comes, mm. you know. So all of our social norms, all the way we, you know, it wasn't one person who failed Lorena Bobbitt, right? Um, And and often when we talk about like victim blaming, it's not victim blaming, it's society blaming. I'm sure her parents could have done a little bit more to instill some sort of sense of self or autonomy. Sure. Mm. I'm sure her school system could have done more to effectively explain how do you communicate in, in in a romantic relationship. Um, I'm sure that, you know, um, his parents could have done a better job in his school system. I'm sure that their religions could have less impressed upon the fact that you have to stay together. The police could have shown up and actually said, hey, this is not okay. You deserve better. This is a crime. Um, You know, uh, domestic violence is a, a social issue and it's it requires a social solution. So it requires an unpacking of a historical context that is not set up for ha- healthy, happy relationships for anyone, friends, parents, right? P- uh, children were abused horribly throughout history. Spouses treated each other terribly. Human beings, the idea that we're going to be good to each other, that's like a real recent <laughs> trend. <laughs> you know, it's like uh, 200 <laughs> years ago, we were dueling it out. If I didn't like you, Rebecca, I'm coming to your house and we're having a duel. Like, <laughs> sometimes I think we forget that. We're only 200 years away from being constantly at war, constantly killing each other. Healthy relationships? Come on, this is a brand new concept in the last 40 <laughs> years out of 10,000. So I'm sorry that got away so from are we, <laughs> What should we blame here? History, we have a lot. <laughs> you, um, yeah, I guess religion, because that was our first law. That was the first thing that huh. set our social edicts. Religion comes before law, and that kind of set the guidelines and the tone for social morals, social ethics, etc. Yeah. Well, Tracy, thank you so much for joining us today and, and, and talking about the subject. Thank you too, Rebecca. I appreciate your attention to this matter. Thank you. (laughs) If you'd like to hear our post-interview discussion and final verdict, head over to Patreon and subscribe. Your support is greatly appreciated. Check out our show notes for a link or head over to patreon.com slash the alarmist. And stay tuned because next week we'll be discussing the Berlin Wall.
Harmist. Powered by ACAST. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.